Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome. I'm Julie Sedanko here with Leslie Vernick. And today Leslie is going to answer a very important question. How do you stay in your marriage and keep your sanity? In other words, if you're committed to staying in your marriage, how do you take care of yourself so that you can handle in a good way whatever life throws at you? Leslie? Sometimes I just want to say that it's not possible to stay safely. All right, I'm going to talk about how could you do that if you need to, but sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes when we love someone, we keep thinking the best about them. We keep hoping that we can change them, that our love will fix them, that our love will save them. The only person's love that saves anybody is Jesus's. Your love is not going to save your husband. Um, And so this is so, so important, friend. If you're in danger, if you feel afraid of someone, physically afraid, it has two horrible components for you. First of all, your personal growth stops because you can't grow and thrive in an environment of fear. You can survive in an environment of fear, but you can't thrive in an environment of fear. So people who have been prisoners in concentration camps or people who are, um, you know, in uh, war zones and they've been captured or people who are um, kidnapped and, you know, tortured or when you're in an environment of fear or just in a fear of COVID, when we were in fear of COVID and everything, it's hard to think about growing. We weren't going out and exercising. We weren't reading great books. We were like, what do we do next? What masks do we need to wear? We were thinking about surviving. So you have two parts of your brain. One part is the survival part and that always trumps. The other part is the growth part. So even children, when children are afraid, they won't venture out into trying new things, right? So when you live in fear and terror, you can't thrive. You might be able to survive, and I'll give you some tips on that, but, but you can't thrive. So there is no staying sane in an insane environment um, when you're physically in danger all the time and threatened, all right, especially in an intimate relationship. So you don't have to do that, at least not in this country. You don't have to do that. There are laws that protect you. But this may require some of your inner story to change because I can't, I'm afraid, I can't make it on my own. All those kind of internal stories that you tell yourself keep you stuck, keep you stuck. Sometimes we can't stay well, but when we separate, we can get well. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the end of our marriage if we can model healthy responses and they can say, I want some of that. I remember working with a woman in my coaching group and she was doing walking and core strength with me. And as she began to learn to respond in more healthy ways, her husband and her were on a walk and he was doing his usual jerky stuff and she didn't respond in her usual way. And he looked at her, he goes, you're different. And she said, yes, I'm learning to act in a way that makes me proud of me. And he said, I want some of that. What are you learning in that class? So sometimes as you grow into a healthier person, you invite other people around you to want some of that too. Other times, they hate it. So when you become light, some people are attracted to the light and some people want to crush the light. You don't know which. And maybe you already do know which, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't become light. So I'm going to give you some things to do. Number one, write this down, is take care of you. So many of us as women are taking care of 
our children, taking care of our husband, trying to take care of our marriage, reading all kinds of books about him, trying to solve what's wrong with him. It's a waste of your time unless he's asking you to help him. But if he's not putting any energy into helping himself, it's still a waste of time. There are a couple essentials that you must do if you want to be a healthy person, even if you're in a good situation, but especially if you're in a bad situation. First of all, you must prioritize your sleep. That sounds like a no-brainer, but sometimes when we have small children, maybe we think the only time we get to ourselves is late at night, but then we're only getting six hours sleep instead of eight hours sleep, and then you're not doing well the next day. So if you want to keep your sanity, you must give your body and your mind a chance to reboot. And that rebooting process takes place in primarily two ways physically. One is sleep, eight hours of sleep. We really do need that, most of us, all right, to function at our best. So make sure you are getting your sleep. The second thing that you need to do to reboot, and this has nothing to do with getting in shape, is exercise. All right. So I walk five miles a day. You know, I, I just have done that for over a year now. Right. I just walk and I don't do it all at once. I just make sure I have 12,000 steps in a day. So I usually work, walk for a mile or two in the morning. I walk for a mile or two in the afternoon. I walk a mile or two in the evening. All right. Because that helps me release the stress hormones that are in my body. And I listen to good music or I listen to a good book. And so I'm double dutying. I'm getting, you know, stimulated with learning or I'm praise and worshiping. And I'm getting rid of those toxins. Walking isn't going to give you big muscles or any of those kind of things, but it does shake off all that cortisol that builds in your body when you live in a stressful environment. So take care of your body. You must prioritize that. The second thing that is really important is that you have to stop isolating. Isolating is one of the tactics of an abuser. And sometimes you isolate yourself because you don't have any energy, because you're fatigued, because you're embarrassed, because you're ashamed, because you don't live by anybody, right? And you're isolating. But the danger of isolation is that you get more and more tuned into one point of view, which is your abuser's point of view, because he's going to have a louder voice than you, right? And he's going to tell you what's true. And he's going to tell you what's right. And he's going to tell you what, what you're about. When I wrote my first book, I mean, this is a silly story, but when I wrote my first book, I didn't know better really on how to approach an editor. So I sent out 12 copies, not of my book, but of my book proposal. That's what you have to do when you send a book. So 12 copies to different Christian publishers. One guy sent it back to me. And he says, obviously, you don't know how to write. I suggest that you hire a ghostwriter. Now, if that was the only bit of feedback I got, I would have said to myself, oh, my gosh. How stupid was I to think I could write a book? Because I was already having that little scare feeling in my own body. How stupid. I, I, this is embarrassing. You know, obviously I can't write. He's right. I can't write. But that wasn't true. I can write. And 11 other publishers either complimented me or said, we want your book or those kind of, not 11. I got a couple, nine, seven rejections, three acceptance, and there's one bad letter. But what I'm saying is if I had only gotten that one bad letter and that was the only perspective I got, that would have come, become my reality because I isolated and I didn't. So what I'm saying to you is get out. And if you can't get out, get online, read books, listen to other people's perspectives, study about abusers and abusive tactics so that you know what they're doing to try to twist your thinking. So stop isolating, get girl girlfriends, get support, get involved in a Bible study, do some reading on not even just abuse, spiritual reading and read from different faith uh, traditions. Don't just read what your church tells you to read. Open your mind so that you can disagree with something. 
I, in the margins of my books, when I read paper books, I'm like, I disagree with this. I disagree. This helps you learn to think. This is important when you've been in an oppressive situation that you're not allowed to think in your marriage. You're not allowed to speak in your marriage. You're not allowed to have an opinion in your marriage. And pretty soon you don't have any. And so start being in environments, even if it's just with a book where you can disagree with the author, but you can't disagree with the book if you only read books that you agree with. So get some weirdo books and see how you think and see how they think and have a conversation with the author, even if it's in your own pen and pencil journal. You can do that and it will help you stay sane in an insane situation. Build your life around things more than your marriage or your mothering. So many women completely collapse their whole life into their role as a wife and as a mom. And when you're, it's toxic, even if you're not in a destructive marriage, because what if your husband leaves you or what if he dies and you have nothing in your life? You are more than that. It doesn't mean you can't be a good wife or a good mom, but you have more to offer and more to give and more to learn and more to grow in. Round yourself out, be a whole person. Your husband isn't just a husband and a, and a dad. He works, he's got hobbies, he does. You too do too, and you should. And if you don't know, start to practice different things and see what you like and what you don't like. It's okay to try something, whether it's food and say, I don't like sushi, or golf and say, I don't like golf, but at least you tried it. But you might try something and say, I kind of like this. I'm not any good at it, like painting. So I've been painting over a couple of years. I'm just, I signed up for a new uh, pencil color class and I'm not bad, I'm not great. I'm a whole lot better than I was a couple of years ago because I keep doing it and I like it and I like doing it, even though I'm not all that good at it. And so learn what you like. Stop isolating. This will help you get a broader perspective and not be so controllable and controlled in your mind. So take care of your body. Sleep and exercise are essential. Eat right would be great too. But if you eat right, but you don't sleep and you don't exercise, it's probably not going to do the trick, right? Sleep, exercise, don't isolate. The third thing I want to talk about is the Bible says something that I don't think we're taught as women. In Proverbs, it says, above all else. I mean, above being a mother, above being a daughter, above being a wife. Yes, above all else. This is your highest priority. Guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Well, what does that mean when you're in a relationship with someone who trashes your heart? all the time. What does this mean? What is your work to do? Guard your heart above all else for your essence comes out of your heart. So the Bible describes our heart as our innermost being, the, the person we want to be, our values, our virtues, our essence, our desires, not our feelings, but our desires. What do you desire the most in your life? What kind of person do you desire to be? This is your heart. And when someone keeps trashing that and smashing that and criticizing that and demeaning that and disrespecting that, it takes a toll on you and you start to feel worthless, worthless, less than, unimportant. And I'm not saying you're better than anybody else, but you're on even playing field with everybody else. And so guard your heart, guard your essence. Don't let someone smother you or put a blanket on who you are through criticism and contempt. Oh, you're too loud. Oh, you're too bossy. Oh, you think you're, so and then you start to get smaller and shrink because something's wrong with me. 
because this person doesn't like me. Let me give you an illustration. Some people won't like you. Some people don't like me. It's okay. I don't like everybody either. <laughs> it's just life, right? So when you go into an ice cream parlor, do you like every single ice cream there? No. You probably have one, maybe two favorites, and that's it. Every time I go in an ice cream parlor, when I eat ice cream, I'm only picking something chocolate. And it's usually something with chocolate chips or chocolate coffee. That's it. I'm not picking any strawberry. I'm not picking any pistachio. I'm not picking anything with marshmallows in it. It's not for me, right? And so when you're in a relationship, life is full of people and they're all different flavors, you're not going to be attracted to every single one of them. And not every single one of them is going to be attracted to you. But here's the mistake women make. They think, oh, you want strawberry? Okay, I'll try to be strawberry. Oh, you don't like strawberry? I'm strawberry. Oh, oh, what do I need to do? Maybe I could become chocolate. We try to change ourselves in order for someone to like us. That's not guarding your heart. God says, guard your heart, guard your essence so that you are the best flavor of strawberry I made you to be. That you don't let someone else diminish your light because they don't like it. People didn't like Jesus and he was perfect. People aren't going to like you. And it might be your, even your own husband, or they might feel threatened by you or insecure around you. And so they try to make you smaller. They tell you not to act so smart. They tell you not to use your gifts because you threaten them because they don't want to develop theirs. Don't allow yourself to fall for that. But guarding your heart also requires you to manage your emotions so that you don't allow your natural anger and your resentment and even your sorrow over your marriage to take over your life. You're gonna feel these feelings. They're normal to feel. But when your feelings take over your life and you've lost your essence, your virtues. So when an angry man lets anger control him or when an angry woman lets anger control him, she usually isn't acting out of the best version of herself. She's not acting out of her essence, her heart. She's acting out of her emotions and later her heart regrets what she did or said, right? So guard your heart, protect your heart so that you don't behave in ways that dishonor yourself, that you don't get so depleted and depressed that you don't even know who you are anymore. And this takes you being intentional, especially when you're in a toxic environment. Just like if you were in a toxic environment, my husband used to be a nuclear engineer. So when he was going to go look at the plant, you'd have to put like a whole radiation suit on. If you're going to clean up toxic chemicals, you don't just go on in there without gloves or without some protection, right? So you protect yourself so that when you're in a toxic environment, it has less impact on you. You must do that if you're going to stay well. Next, so take care of your body. Don't isolate. Third, guard your heart above all else. Let me just say one more thing about that. So often we keep trying to get someone to love us if we're in a marriage with that person. Please treat me better. Please love me. Please don't do this. Please don't say that. When you've said those things to someone who ignores you and disrespects your request like that, understand if you keep doing that, you're giving them ammo to harm you. The Bible says don't cast your pearls before swine. And so when you have already tried to get someone to hear your perspective or value you as a person, hey, that bothers me. Please don't do that. And when you say that to a normal person, they value you enough to not do that. But when your husband makes fun of you or mocks you or anybody else, your boss, your girlfriend, your sister, your mother, for having a request, understand that when you keep casting your pearls before swine, Jesus warned you not to do that. Guard your heart above all else. Guarding your heart doesn't mean you have a hard heart. It just means you accept 
that this person isn't going to give you what you need or want, and you accept that. You accept the reality of that. You don't beg them to give you something they don't want to give you, which is respect and care. They don't want to give you that. And you accept that. I'm not saying you like it. Just like if you accepted you had breast cancer, you wouldn't like it, but you'd accept it because now you know I need chemo, right? So you have to accept reality when someone refuses to treat you in the way that you want to be treated. Fourth, renew your mind with God's truth. Just like we need to reboot our body, we need to be careful of our thought life because when our internal story is, well, he must be right. And I guess I am a horrible wife and God must be really mad at me and I can't do anything right. And I'll never be able to live on my own. If that's our internal story about our external story, guess what? <laughs> we're going to get really sick and we're going to get really stuck. And so you have to guard your heart and you have to watch over your mind. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, who does that for you if you don't, right? So you have some work to do to stay sane in an unhealthy, toxic relationship. And one of them is making sure that your self-talk isn't just affirmations. Here's the problem with affirmations. When you say affirmations that you know aren't true, that you know, like, I'm a, I'm a wealthy person, and you're working at Walmart, and you're not a wealthy person, you know you're BSing yourself, right? And so you don't take it in as truth, right? If you say, I am a caring and loving person, and that's in essence who you want to be, even though sometimes you slip into being an angry person because of your emotional part getting the best of you, you, you know that's who you are. That's who you want to be. And so as you say that, I'm a decent human being. I am a worthy person created in God's image. There's something that's a truth meter inside of us that says, mm -hmm, that's who you are. And when someone tells you you're a loser, you don't know what you're talking about. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You're a horrible wife. You're a Jezebel spirit. When they say those things to you, words are powerful, right? And we need to be able to guard our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. There's an acronym I'm going to teach you. We talk a lot about this in Conquer in our membership group, but I'm going to teach it to you right now. It's called Jade, J-A-D-E. If you can start doing this, this will help you tremendously. All right. So when you're having a conversation with a toxic person, it really isn't a conversation, right? You know that. You don't have any input. You don't have a voice. They don't care what you have to say. So we tell our women in Conquer, don't jade. This is part of guarding your heart. Don't justify why you want something or why you said something or why you don't want something. Don't justify your boundary. Don't argue, A. Don't argue. Don't defend yourself and don't explain yourself. Now, Jade is very common to do in normal relationships when you have a conversation with someone. You might explain yourself. You might argue a bit. You might defend yourself. No, I didn't mean that. That's not what I said. But when you do this with a toxic person, what you will get in, into is a crazy making conversation that you will not know which side is up when you're done with it. Even I would. Even I would, and I know better, all right? When you start defending yourself, if I start defending myself with a crazy maker on Facebook, or I start defending myself on someone who said something untrue about me with someone who's out to do that crazy making dance, there is no conversation there. 
There is no conversation there. They're just out to blame, attack, accuse, deny, and shame you. And the more you start justifying, arguing, defending, and explaining, they suck you into this vortex where at the end of it, you feel like your brain is on fire and you don't know which way is up. So you have a choice. Here's what you can say. I'm not going to defend myself. I feel comfortable with my decision. I'm not going to explain myself anymore because obviously you don't want to hear what I have to say. And you don't accept my explanation. So I accept that you don't accept my explanation. I'm not going to justify myself because I'm comfortable with my convictions. I don't want to argue anymore. All right? Done. <laughs> you just stop the conversation to guard your heart and mind from this crazy-making, exhausting moment. How many of you have been in the crazy dance? When you're living with a toxic person, you need all your energy to do what you're there for, and which is usually raise your children. So, so many women, um, in, you know, in domestic violence literature or in abusive literature, you know, sometimes women are shamed when they stay, like, oh, you're just too weak to leave, or why don't you leave? Well, th there's a good question there, like, why don't you leave? But sometimes you're afraid to leave, or you're not ready to leave. You're not prepared to leave, but you don't prepare to leave and you need to prepare to leave, but you're not ready. All right. And so you're staying. But while you stay, maybe your kids are just too little. Maybe you have a nursing baby and there is no way you're going to let that nursing baby be with your husband for 50 percent of the time because, you know, he's irresponsible. You know, he's an addict. You know, he, she won't get fed. So you have to stay for now. Right. I get that. And we want to help you stay in a way that doesn't necessarily make your marriage better. No promises here. But so you don't lose your mind or so you don't lose your health. In my group in Conquer, and our women will tell you this, women who have been in a toxic marriage for 30 years are now experiencing severe health issues, autoimmune deficiency diseases, all kinds of other problems because of those stress hormones day after day after day after day. And they didn't have the tools that were helping people with now, but sooner or later it takes its toll. So the last step, so you're gonna renew your mind with God's truth, you're going to be careful how you talk to yourself. You're going to practice jade. You're going to monitor that self-talk. And one other thing that's really important, when you live in a negative environment, our brains have a negativity bias. Neuroscience is now showing that because of this fight or flight amygdala brain that is survival and, you know, wants, was very attuned to danger, right? Safety. We have a negative bias. Our mind sees the negative more than the positive, because if something's dangerous, we need to know that, right, to survive. So we have a negativity bias. So we tend to see more negative in life than positive. And if you sense that in you, that you're, you know, especially living in a toxic environment, there's a lot of negative there and you could dwell on that. And so another thing about guarding your mind and your heart is practice gratitude every day. Look for a couple things that you can genuinely be grateful for. It might not be anything in your marriage, but it might be I'm grateful that I slept well last night. I'm grateful that I've got these two beautiful children, even though I don't like their dad. <laughs> right? I'm grateful that I can take a deep breath and go walk in the sunshine today and feel the sun on my skin. I'm grateful that I have enough money to pay my bills. Whatever it is that you could be grateful for, focus. Paul says, whatsoever things are true, good, right, lovely, let your mind dwell on these things, Philippians 4.8. So you have to practice doing that because we're not naturally inclined to do that when we're in a hard place. We're tempted to dwell on the negative. So by taking care of your mind, you're going to force yourself to look for the positive every day. And it might not be in your marriage, but it might be somewhere in your life. So take care of your body, 
Don't isolate. Guard your heart. Be careful of your mind and what you're thinking about. Practice gratitude. Don't practice jade. Take every thought captive. Monitor your self-talk so it's true and good and right. Not just big dream aspirations or affirmations, but what's true. What does God say is true about who you are and what your purpose is? And last but not least, prepare. Prepare to be independent. And a lot of women resist this because their idea of their life was, I'm going to live in this wonderful marriage and be a homeschool mom and raise my kids and take care of my home. And that's what I really want to do. I didn't really want to have a career. And that's fine if you can afford to do that. But some of you can't. And some of you won't be able to because if you start getting stronger, it's very possible that your husband could leave you too, right? If you're not as easily controllable, if you're not as easily intimidated, if you're not scared into submission, all those kind of things, he may find someone else who's willing to do that. And now you have to live by yourself and you have to support yourself. Every human being who's over the age of 18 in this culture is considered an adult. An adult means that you are capable of taking care of yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, financially. And sometimes as women, we allow ourselves to become overly dependent and sometimes men do too, not usually financially, but emotionally or socially overly dependent on their wife to fix their life, to make their life for them. And when we become overly dependent on our husbands to make our financial security for us, we are putting ourselves in an extremely vulnerable position. Because if we're in a toxic marriage and we need to get out and we can't because we haven't prepared ourselves to do that. So if you're going to get, stay sane, you need to know that you're capable of leaving if you have to. And part of knowing that you're capable of leaving if you have to is being able to support yourself and your children. So your work right now is to let go of trying to change him or your marriage and work on you. Take care of your body, get your sleep, exercise. Don't isolate, find some girlfriends, read, educate yourself, start educating yourself to get a job. There's tons of classes online that you can take to shore up computer skills and all those kind of things. There's lots of work from home that you can do these days if you're knowledgeable in technical things. My, my assistant, Martha, works full-time for me at home. She's done so for eight years. She's pretty flexible with her children. You can do that if you are preparing yourself to do that. And so don't think that you just have to be a sitting duck in a bad marriage. You've got some work to do. And that doesn't mean you're going to leave them right away, but it might mean that you need to prepare to be in a place where you could if you need to, where you could, because the more that you have choices, then the stronger you feel, right? The less victimized you feel because you have choices. You don't have to continue to live like this if he is hurting you and harming you and your kids. And I want to just make a caveat here because we're not talking about, I don't like him anymore. We're not in love anymore. He doesn't clean up the socks. He leaves his milk carton out on the sink. I'm not talking about that. That's normal aggravating marriage stuff. And all of us have to learn to put up with some of that. And he has to put up with some of that with you too. We're talking about toxic, destructive patterns of behavior that are unchanged over time, that are taking their toll on you. Leslie, I want to ask you a question. What if a woman tries to end a conversation, but her husband won't stop? Maybe he follows her around or yells through the door or won't stop texting and calling. That kind of behavior can easily make someone feel like they're losing their sanity. How does a person handle this kind of 
behavior in their marriage? So I think what you can say is two things. One is, I told you I don't want to continue this conversation. What is it that you're not hearing about what I just said? Well, I want to continue this conversation. Okay, I understand you want to, but I don't want to. And it takes two to have a conversation. So I can't talk and I can't listen. I need to go to bed. I'm happy to have this conversation with you tomorrow afternoon or early tomorrow evening. I'm not willing to have this conversation with you at 1030 at night. So here's where you're going to have to be really strong, not snarky, not mean, but really strong. I'm not willing to do that. And if he continues to violate that boundary, that is telling you he has this mindset that I am entitled to your time and your energy whenever I need or want it, regardless of how you feel. My needs are always more important than your needs. And so you're saying, hey, I need to get to sleep. I've got two little ones to take care of in the morning. I need my rest. I'm done with talking. I need some a break from this. And he's saying to you after you say, what is it that you don't hear about me saying no? I can't do this right now. Right? Just like if you were to say, I can't have sex right now. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a vaginal infection or I just had a baby or I don't feel good or I'm exhausted. And he says, it doesn't matter what you say. I need sex. So roll over and open your legs. I mean, what kind of husband does that? A selfish, entitled husband that says, you are an object to use. My needs are always more important than yours. Well, if that's his mindset about who you are, you don't have a prayer of a chance of having a healthy relationship because you don't have a relationship. You are being used as an object. All right. And so that's not good news. So it's like saying, oh, I have a lump in my breast. I hope, I hope it's just a fatty tissue, whatever. And you go in and you say, nope, it's not that. It's this. It's cancer. And it's serious. Right. So when you try to speak to your husband and he says, nope, I don't care about how you feel. My needs are the only ones that matter here. So roll over or start talking or you better listen to me. That's saying to you, the toxicity in your marriage is serious. You are not a person to love, but an object to use. And what does that mean to you? How are you going to function in that? You can't. So then what? This is where you have to stay calm enough and be able to stay calm enough not to get into a jading conversation, not to justify why you need sleep, not to argue about it, not to defend why you need sleep, and not to explain why you need sleep. You know, maybe you don't need eight hours of sleep. I do. Maybe you still want to talk, but I don't. And you have to cut that whole argument off because he'll spend another two hours with you on that jade conversation while you're defending why you need sleep. Meanwhile, he's gotten what he wanted. He had a conversation with you, but it was exhausting and it cost you. It costs you two hours of sleep. Now, if he, if you lay in your bed and you put your covers over your head or you put your noise-canceling earphones in your ears, at least temporarily until he stops bothering you, um, and he rips them out or he rips the covers off or he escalates his demands, I think th th those are really, in those are information bits that tell you this is not just a needy man. This is a dangerous man who will escalate in order to get what he wants. He will scare you. He will intimidate you. He will threaten you. How much are you going to put up with that? I mean, most abusers don't start by killing their victims the first time they see them. So how long do you wait before it escalates, escalates, escalates? So what we do as women is we just comply because compliance is part of the abusive pattern. We know that if we don't comply, there's going to be an escalation, right? And it's going to be awful for our kids, for us. And so we don't want that. So we comply. So then they get what they want. They get more and more control over us. And that 
dynamic happens over months and years. All right. And so I'm just telling you, this is the pattern, ladies. This is the pattern of an abuser to isolate, to dominate, to deflect, to manipulate, to control. And whatever technique works, if I can bully you into controlling you, that's what I'll do. If I have to restrain you or harm you to control you, then maybe that's what I'll do. So I think it's really important that we understand that, that this isn't in any way a healthy, loving relationship. So you mentioned control. A lot of men will say that we're trying to control them by dictating when a conversation ends. I think you're not, so here's where you don't justify, argue, defend, or explain because he's trying to suck you back in. I think you can say, this is what I'm willing to do. I am willing to have a constructive conversation where you talk for five minutes and I talk for five minutes or you talk for however long you want to talk and I'll talk for however long I want to talk um, so that we can get somewhere in this conversation. But I'm not willing to talk at 11 o'clock at night. I'm not willing to talk for five hours. I'm not willing to talk where I don't have a, a word to say in edgewise. And if you see that as controlling, okay, make another suggestion. But this conversation is not going anywhere. When you start asserting yourself as what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do, the destructive husband has another lie. And that is, I'm entitled to do what I want whenever I want. And you're supposed to just comply. And if you give me grief about it or you aren't willing to do it, then you're the controlling one, right? So they have this twisted way of seeing things. And you're not going to change that twisted way of seeing things. But one of the red flags is for you to recognize that when they still have those twisted ways of seeing things, nothing is changing. Nothing is changing, right? So if someone still has a twisted way of seeing things and you're saying, hey, this isn't working for me and I'm not willing to do that. And you're the bad guy because it's my way or the highway and my needs always come first. You understand that there's twisted thinking and their mind is not working right. And you're not going to change their mind. You've tried lots and lots of times. You've prayed. You've done everything you can do to help them see it differently. Jesus did that with Judas. Jesus did that with the Pharisees. He even called them names. You brood of vipers. You're ignorant. You're like whitewashed tombs. And they still didn't change. They still didn't see it. So you're not going to change their mind. Okay. So when we're talking about keeping your sanity, I think it's only natural to talk about antidepressants. What is your opinion of using these to help with coping in a destructive marriage. I think if you need antidepressants temporarily to give you clarity of mind, that's what you need, all right? I don't think there's any shame in taking medication um, for depression as long as you understand what it does. So antidepressant medication is a, like Theraflu, it helps you feel better, right? It helps you function. And if you need to feel better in order to function, I'm gonna take Theraflu. <laughs> I'm gonna take an aspirin if it helps me get rid of my headache and I can function, right? So if you need that so that you can function or that you can sleep, do that. But understand that oftentimes antidepressants, um, we get dependent on those things as the solution to the problem. And when I was writing my book on depression, I have a book on depression. Depression is usually for women, I find it's a personal response to interpersonal distress. In other words, the National Institute of Mental Health has said that the highest rates of depression are among unhappily married women. All right. So the antidepressant medication may help you function better and even feel better, but it doesn't change the reason you got depressed in the first place. And that's your work to do, right? You still have work to do. 
even if you feel better. It's sort of like my brother was playing golf and he had like this shooting pain down the left of his arm. And, you know, you know that that's not a good sign. He's, he was young. He was in his early 50s. Um, and he thought, eh, you know, something's wrong. So he went to the doctor. They did an echocardiogram and all that kind of stuff. And they found a couple of blocked arteries. So the solution to that pain and the blocked arteries was to put some stints in his arteries. But then the doctor said, you're a young man. Why are you having coronary artery disease? Are you under a lot of stress? Do you have a family history? What's your diet like? Do you exercise, right? Because those are risk factors that will clog his arteries. The stints made him feel better and they were necessary. But the stints didn't solve the coronary artery disease problem. And I think this is the myth about antidepressants is they solve the depression problem. No, they help you function better and they help you feel better. They don't fix what's wrong. So um, in our Conquer membership, we have a whole webinar on um, depression and, and all of that. But I'm not opposed to anti, uh, just like if you were, if you had a sprained ankle, you might need a scooter or a crutch. Perfect. <laughs> it helps you get around, right? Um, I wouldn't want to have to get around without a scooter or a crutch because it would hurt more. So you use that until you get stronger. So do your work to get stronger so that depression isn't as able to take a hold of your heart and your mind and your body as it did when you weren't guarding your heart, when you weren't taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and when you weren't Sleeping enough and exercising your body. All those things are risk factors for depression. That when we don't know how to do that or we don't do that, we think we can just function like machines. We can't. The machine breaks down and we have to take care of us ourselves. And so I really would encourage you to take your antidepressants. But Duke University did a study with people who took antidepressants and people who didn't take antidepressants, and they, but they exercised. So they exercised three times a week aerobically, and then they both got better. They both felt better. But the ones who stayed better were the ones who exercised. So understand that your body does play a role. Sleep plays a role. Your mind plays a role. Your heart plays a role. And your relationships play a role. So what would you say to a woman who has tried to stay in her marriage but realizes she just cannot stay well, and yet she's not prepared to leave financially or for whatever reason? So I would say that, you know what? You're not alone. There are many women who have been widowed, who have been discarded, who were not prepared to leave. So you're going to have to pull your big girl pants on and prepare yourself to function in whatever way you can. And there are tons of jobs available right now, and they may not be your ideal job. But if you are a faithful employee and a hard worker and you show up and you put in the effort, guess what? You're going to move to the top pretty quick because companies are starved for good, conscientious employees. This is where we get a little bit whiny as people, not just women, but men too, is that's not what I want to do. I don't like that. And if I had to, I mean, I've had jobs that I've made gift wrapped packages at JCPenney <laughs> working my way through college, right? That's what my job was. I've lived in a dorm as an RA. I've done all kinds of jobs that I've waited tables many a times as a waitress. Things that I wouldn't have wanted to do long term, but I needed to do it to get where I wanted to go until you can go back to school, till you can take some computer training and get some extra skills so that you can make more money. You may not be prepared to be a nurse right now if that's really what you wanna be, or you may not be prepared to be a teacher right now, and that's something you can work toward. But if you're an able-bodied person, you can be an employee somewhere right now. And that may be what you have to do if your husband's left you. 
It may not be your ideal job. It may not be ideally what you wanted your life to look like, but whose life ever looks, whoever wanted COVID. We didn't want COVID. We had to, we had to adjust. Some people get cancer. They didn't want that. They have to adjust. And that's part of resiliency. That's part of bouncing back from adversity. And that's what we're talking about. How do we stay sane? How do we stay clear-minded? How do we stay strong or get strong in spite of what's happening in our external story? That depends on your internal story. So how does a woman stay sane if she's dealing with a husband who has an addiction and maybe he's in complete denial about it? What kind of boundaries do you recommend that she have in this kind of situation? Here's a, here's a hint that I would use. It's so easy to label someone. We want to diagnose them. We want to demonize them. Oh, he's narcissistic. Well, you don't know that for sure. You're not a professional to diagnose. Oh, they're an addict. So I would say change that language because someone is going to deny that they're a narcissist and someone is going to deny that they're an addict. So this is what I want you to say instead. I don't know if you're an addict or not. All I know is I see you falling down every night after you've drank three bottles of wine. So you're going to describe the behavior. I don't know if you're an addict, but I know that you're spending $3,000 a month on weed. So, so let go of the labels and describe the behavior and the consequences to you and the family. And then once you get really clear on what the behavior is and the consequences, so leave off the label. I don't know if you're a narcissist. All I know is that you treat me like I don't matter. And I don't like that because someone will argue with you about that label. So don't put the label on, just describe the behaviors because they can't argue with you so much about the behaviors. Now they might, but then you know what? You've got this trusty little thing. And so when he's stumbling around and mumbling his words, just turn on the video and let him see himself about, you don't think this is what I see? This is what I see. And obviously sometimes addict will not look at it. You're just making this up and all that kind of stuff. Well, now you know that he's not, not only willing to look at his behavior, but he's not, and he's not willing to change it. So what boundaries could you put in place? So here are some boundaries. You might have to separate finances, especially if you work. You might have to say, my paycheck's going in the bank and that's not going to be accessed because you're spending $3,000 on booze every month and I'm not putting family money toward that. Or it might be, I don't know if you're an addict or not, but you're so mean and so cruel with your words that I'm, I'm going to go in another part of the house. If you have little kids, if you can separate yourself um, or separate completely, it might be, you know what? I don't know if you're an addict or not, but I can't live like this because when you drink, you get mean and you scare me and you scream and you yell and you scare the kids and I'm spending hours trying to put them to bed and calm them down and I can't live like this. So whether you're an addict or not, I don't know, but your drinking makes you loud and scary and mean and I'm not living like that. All right. And then you may need to prepare to leave. So I think this is where we're asking other people to make our life work. And those other people have no intention of making our life work. So an adult says, hmm, I guess I have to make my life work. Just like if you had black mold in your house. All right. So let's take the man out of there. If you had black mold growing in your house and you, and let's say you were a single mom and you said to the landlord, landlord, I have black mold in my house. I'm not fixing it too bad. Other people would live there. You don't want to live there. Don't live there. But I'm, I'm going to leave. But wait a minute. We're getting sick. We're going to the doctor. We're having asthma attacks. God, why don't you fix this black mold? I'm not fixing the black mold. My house, I can do what I want. I'm not. Fi- what are you going to do? Are you going to say, oh, I guess I have to live here in black mold. Are you going to say, I got to find another apartment. And this is powerful, ladies, because you do have agency. It's just that you don't like it. You don't like that they're not willing to do what you want them to do. And I get that. There's plenty of people in my life who won't do what I want them to do. But that doesn't mean you have to stay in victim mindset. There's nothing I can do. He won't fix the mold. 
I guess I just have to stay here and die. You don't. You don't. And so now you've got to put your big girl pants on and find another apartment or find another place to live because you don't want to live like that. Right. And so we so often think, well, why won't he get, why won't he fix that? Why won't he fix it? I don't know why he won't, but he won't. So now what are you going to do? What are your boundaries? I won't live like this. And that's hard, especially with our Christian teaching about divorce. And so let me just say this, that God does not care more about the sanctity of marriage. He cares about the sanctity of marriage, and I do too. But he does not care more about the sanctity of marriage than the safety and the sanity of the people in the marriage. God allowed for divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. He knows that you can't make relationship work with everybody. Even Jesus couldn't make relationship work with everybody. And you can't either sometimes. And to call it for what it is, it's dead. The relationship is dead. The trust is broken. There is no caring. I can't trust that he will care for me. I can't trust that he will care about how I feel. I can't trust that he will be safe. When trust is broken and safety is broken, you can live there, but you can't live there in a safe, sane way. And even in the Old Testament in Proverbs, it says it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than with an angry and contentious person. It takes its toll. Let's say a woman leaves her destructive marriage and her husband makes some changes. So she moves back in with them. But then old behaviors return. I know there's some women that have been through this cycle more than once. They think he's really changed, but then are devastated to find out he really hasn't. What should they do in this situation? When you keep going back to a relationship, what specific changes are you looking for? So he's not going to become a perfect man. Never. And you're not going to become a perfect woman. So what is it that you're called to forbear in a relationship? Like we're all called to forbear some things, right? That we're not perfect. We're not married to perfect people. We don't have perfect children. So Paul tells us, put up with one another, accept one another's weaknesses, right? So we have to learn that if we're going to live in community with one another. So what's for you? maybe disappointing, but put upable. Like maybe he's not all that romantic or he's not that, doesn't remember my birthday, but I can, I can put up with that because he's got a lot of other good qualities and, you know, he's faithful and he's loyal and he's kind and he's generous. And so he doesn't remember my birthday. I'll just buy myself a birthday present, give it to him to give me. Right. So, so those would be some things. Um, or is the behavior not, not forbearable? Like he, is irresponsible financially and he puts us in debt. He calls me names. He hurts the children. He's a rageaholic. He's putting holes in the walls. He's lying to me all the time. He's a porn addict. What is put upable, forbearable, and what is not forbearable? And I think those are somewhat personal um, to the degree that you're, you know, mature and understandable that you're not going to ever find everybody who's going to do everything you want for sure. And they're not going to find you to do everything they want. And so there is this rub of learning to live together with people that are different than you in loving, caring community. And that's, that's the challenge. I mean, when I, before I got married, I never had to forgive like I had to forgive after I've been married or, or you know, speak the truth in love like I do when I'm in marriage because you have to if you're going to have a, a long-term relationship with someone. You have to learn those skills. Um, you have to learn to put up with people that are different than you or have different dreams or different ideas or different personalities. And that's part of family life when you have children, right? Um, you don't just get rid of everybody that doesn't think like you do. Um, in fact, it's kind of stimulating to have people who don't think like you do. So I don't know what's forbearable for you in the disappointment and what's crossing the line into destructive. There's two it's here. There's the pattern, 
your part of the pattern and his part of the pattern and him. You can't change him. You can't change him. You can't change him. You can't even change your kids. Only they can change themselves as you nurture them, nourish them, instruct them, and then they decide to change, right? So that's one it. And then the other it is the pattern. So you can change your part of the pattern. That's all you can change. So if your husband gaslights you, you can jade. That's your part of the pattern, right? If he threatens you, you can leave. That's your part of the pattern. You can't change him. So you can change your part of the pattern. You can't change the whole pattern, but you can change your part of the pattern. But when you change your part of the pattern, the pattern changes. Now, it doesn't always get better. Just like when you stop dancing with a person who's stepping on your toes and you say, I'll fast dance with you, but I won't slow dance with you because you keep stepping on my toes and you're not stopping. So I won't do that anymore. That's my boundary. All right. So they may say, okay, let's fast dance. And now you have a new pattern. Or they might grab you by your shirt and pull you up and say, you're dancing with me, whether you like it or not. And I'm going to step on your toes, whether you like it or not. Well, then you got a whole different pattern here. But now, you know, he's not just clumsy. He's scary. And I need to get out. What if there's weapons in the house, Leslie? Does that automatically make it a more dangerous situation? Uh, it depends. If there's a gun in the house and it's not been pointed at you or threatened, you're, you've been threatened. I mean, we have guns in our house. So that's not the issue. Again, it's just like the ad addiction may not be the issue. What is the person doing with the gun? So I worked with a woman whose husband was a policeman. And when he came home from work, he refused to take his holster off. It's a pretty intimidating thing to walk around with somebody who's got a holster on their, on their shirt. And basically, if you don't do what I want, I might use this on you. Right. And so that's a very different environment than someone who has a gun in a lockbox without it being loaded. But having a gun in the house, whether you're depressed or whether you're an abuser, certainly elevates your risk of danger. All right. So we have a whole in our conquer thing. We have a whole acronym called danger, dangerous, D-A-N-G-E-R-O-U-S. And it gives you all those 13 things to look for in terms of how much danger you're in. And the G in dangerous stands for guns or weapons in the house. So there has to be other factors too, because there's lots of people who have guns in their house and they would never use them for anything other than self-protection. But if there are guns in the house, people, when they get emotionally out of control, can do some harmful things. And if someone listening is in danger, be sure to call the domestic violence hotline. They will help you set up a safety plan. And their number is 1-800-799-SAFE. 1-800-799-SAFE. Okay, so I'm gonna throw another situation at you, and that would be a woman who is married to a person who has been diagnosed as autistic. What should she do in this kind of situation? Is it beholden upon her to stay because he has a diagnosis like this, even if he's destructive? Well, autism has its own unique features. And I'm not an expert in autism, but there is um, a colleague of mine who is. So you might want to look up Stephanie Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S, and she does a lot of coaching with men who are autistic. So autistic men um, have some uh, missing components in their brain or women that make it make them less able to read social cues, like a soft no, they wouldn't read. <laughs> soft no, they wouldn't hear. A hard no, they would hear. They may not like it. So, so here's what happens when we have like neuro problems 
uh, mental health problems and, and character problems. So just autism alone doesn't make someone destructive. It may make them a little bit socially awkward. It may make them a little bit um, unable to meet some of your needs for intimacy and connection because they don't read those cues. But autism alone um, doesn't make someone mean or cruel or selfish or uncaring. It may make them a little bit more isolated, a little bit more like, clueless, but not cruel. A really good place to go for some information on this, just so that you don't have to buy it or anything, is called, it's just go to on Amazon and look up the book, The Journal of Best Practices, and then just read the intro. It's, it's, you, know, you can just download the intro and read it or, you know, and it's, it's a book written by a man who his wife confronted him and said, I think you have autism. And he said, no, I don't, you know, and, and then, you know, she said, no, take this test. And he did. And he really worked hard to understand his quirks didn't go away and some of his, you know, disability didn't go away, but, but he was able to understand the impact that had on his wife and was able to work with her on trying to mitigate some of that. But someone who some qualities and also has character issues like selfishness and cruelness and narcissism um, is a toxic blend because an autistic person is self-referenced and a narcissistic person is self-absorbed. So self-referenced means an autistic person has a very hard time understanding another person's point of view because like, no, no, why would you think that way? I, I can't even understand why you would, he doesn't have an, or she doesn't have an ability to kind of look at things from a lot of different angles. So I would just encourage you to confront that, ask him to take a test. Now, if he refuses, those are character issues. That's not autistic issues. If a bipolar person is acting out and bipolar and you say, hey, I think you need a psychiatric evaluation and some medication, and they refuse, that's not bipolarness. That's stubbornness and pride. That's a different issue, right? And so understand that when you're dealing with someone, whatever problem they have, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, autism, narcissism, if they're so stubborn and prideful that they refuse to get help, they're not going to change. <laughs> not going to change anything, right? So the stubbornness and pride, it's not the disease itself that keeps them from getting help. It's the stubbornness and pride, which are character issues. I have a practical question. Should a woman who's trying to stay well continue with all of her regular household duties, for lack of a better word? I think that really depends. I don't see why you couldn't if you want to. So you have a home to maintain right? You have bills to pay. You have laundry to do. If you lived with a roommate, wouldn't you look at those responsibilities and divvy them up in some ways? So let's say if we, if we look at the traditional thing, it's traditional thing, and he's going off to work in your home, if he's going off to work and he's bringing in money to pay the bills for the house, then maybe you clean the house. Or if he's going off to work to bring money in to take care of the cars, maybe you can put gas in the cars or you can do the laundry. You know, so I think there's this mutuality and reciprocity that can happen even in a two people living together that aren't married. But if you're both working and you're both bringing money into the family to pay the bills and the household expenses, then both of you can say, hey, you know, our relationship isn't functioning very well, but we still have kids and we still have a house to maintain. Who does what? And talk about that. And see if you can, you know, so you're going to do the lawn and I'm going to do the dishes and you're going to take the kids on Saturdays and I'm going to keep them on Sundays and, you know, we're going to do their homework during the week. And how are we going to do all this together? Because we still have responsibilities that have to be maintained, even if our, even if our relationship is at an awkward state. You have mutual responsibilities to take care of things and those things can't just drop. Okay, last question. And we get this one a lot. What do you do 
when your husband tells you that you should obey him like it says in the Bible? This is one that you're not going to win the argument. So we're not going to justify. We're not going to argue. We're not going to defend. We're not going to explain. You might try it the first time, but you know you're going to go in a circle here. So you're going to have to say, you know, I know that's what you believe. And that's the way that you see the Bible. I don't see it that way. And I'm comfortable with my convictions. That's it. I don't see it that way. I don't see unwavering obedience is something that I'm supposed to do. I think I'm an adult person and I get choices and I have a choice to say no sometimes. And that's it. He's going to disagree. And, and then you just say, we have to agree to disagree because I don't see it the way you see it and you don't see it the way I see it. And that's it. So I think when we have different convictions on things, and this is, again, we have to let go of our need to change them. Like, let's say your husband wants to watch stuff on TV that you don't think is good for him. R-rated movies or cursing and violence or whatever. You know, you can say to him, hey, I don't think this is good for you. And he's going to say, I like it. Doesn't bother me. If you don't want to watch it, don't watch it, but I'm going to watch it. Right. And if you start badgering him and controlling him, then that's not healthy. He's going to be the person he wants to be. So if he's badgering and controlling you to submit, that's not submission. And it's not biblical headship. It's abusive behavior because biblical headship is looking out for your interests and serving you. That's what biblical headship really is. You get to serve first. Jesus modeled that when he did the whole foot washing thing. And biblical submission is important, but it's not just for wives. It's not just for women. Submit to one another so that we can have unity and togetherness and community. And there's not lots of arguing going on. So you don't have to have your way all the time. Submission is important, but it's not just for wives and it's not just for women. And it's not something that someone can coerce you into doing. If someone's coercing you into submitting, it's not called submission. It's called coercion. <laughs> and that the Bible says the oppressor oppresses the oppressed. And that's not biblical. So, but you're not going to convince them of that, but you have to be okay with that. You have to be clear on what you believe. And that's why you have to do your own work and grow and thrive and, and not just listen to what someone tells you is true. Do your own research to see if it's true. Is that what the Bible really means? That when you get married, now you are no longer an adult person. You are a child who has to unquestionably obey your husband like a child would obey their parent. Is that true? So why would you grow up? Why wouldn't you just get married at five if that's the truth? Right? Why would God call you to mature? Why would God call you to learn to guard your heart and your mind if you're not supposed to do that after you get married? It's really important that we really think through and learn to think as women. So thank you so much for being with me here. Absolutely, Leslie. Thank you so much for helping these women that are trying to stay well in very difficult circumstances. Appreciate you. That's all for this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. But you'll be happy to hear that Leslie has just opened the doors to her Moving Beyond People-Pleasing course. This is a life-changing opportunity if you struggle with saying yes when you really want to say no, over-functioning while everyone else around you under-functions, if you have a fear of conflict or dread disapproval, and if you feel manipulated but don't know how to stop it. This course will even have a special bonus to help you move beyond broken trust. Sign up now through July 1st. Find out more at lesliewernick.com forward slash people pleasing course. And until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.